This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello and welcome to Maddox on the Mic. You're listening to Season 2 of Watchdog where today we'll be discussing the Australian energy market, we'll be looking at trends and agency activity in this sector. My name is Sean Temby. I'm a partner in the Dispute Resolution and Litigation team at Maddox. I'm also editor of our annual publication, the ACCC Year in Review. Joining me today for our episode on energy is Maddox partner Peter Limbers and special counsel Richard Robinson. Peter is a leading Australian energy sector lawyer with more than 20 years' experience. He acts for energy utilities, energy sector investors, and government on energy projects, transactional and commercial work, as well as energy market regulatory work. Richard is an experienced competition and economic regulation lawyer. He has significant experience in merger clearances and authorizations, access and infrastructure regulation, and ACCC investigations and enforcement. Welcome to the show, Peter and Richard. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Pleased to be here. Well, we, you know, I'm very happy we've got such um, esteemed experts on the topic of energy joining us today. I was really interested to hear what you guys had to say about, you know, what we're seeing, particularly in relation to retail prices. What, what, what are we seeing in the in- industry and the sector at the moment? Thanks, Sean. I might lead off on that one. Firstly, one of the key things impacting retail prices is the spiking in that we've seen in wholesale gas and electricity markets since the beginning of the year particularly in the May and June uh, part of the year when we ended up with an administered price in both the, gold, the, the wholesale gas spot markets and ultimately a, a market intervention and uh, in, in the electricity market, which led to the suspension of the market by EMO, the market operator. And that was kind of driven by a perfect storm of three things, those high prices. Firstly, high international coal in gas and coal prices, following you know, post-pandemic and demand in Europe and uncertain weather and then the war in Ukraine with cutting off Russian gas really spiked that already increased international gas and oil prices even further. You then had in April, uh, May, you had a number of scheduled outages of our older coal-fired plant and then some unexpected outages of the coal-fired plant as well, which put a big demand for gas-fired generation at that time. Uh, Coupled with the onset, the third perfect storm factor was an early winter, like unseasonally cold uh, temperatures in May. So that those three factors led to spot prices in both gas and electricity going through the roof and and EMA having to effectively intervene in the markets to to alleviate that. It's quite a confluence of events. And, you know, we... (laughs) That word unprecedented is one we've heard many, many times, and I'm sure most of us are a bit sick of it. But, uh, you know, the market suspension that you mentioned a moment ago, that, that is unprecedented. Can you explain to uh, to the listeners what, you know, precisely what happened there? Yeah, so that's where EMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, it started by intervening by putting an administered price cap at $300 a megawatt hour, which, you know, over the last, let's say, three or four years, assume um, electricity spot prices averaging around, say, the $80 mark in New South Wales, for example. Uh, and then, and then, you know, so 
the administered price cap of $300 a megawatt hour, but then after that, they just gave up effectively and suspended the market, which means that there's no longer bidding and, and dispatching like in the normal spot market scenario. It's them administering the price to a scheduled prices and um, people, disp generators dispatching under direction in many cases. And that that has not happened, that um, market intervention of the suspension of the market since the commencement of the national electricity market in 1997. So it, it is genuinely unprecedented. So they kind of froze the, the free market aspect of it and really went in with a heavy hand of regulation. Is that a, is that a simple Pretty much. Is it, absolutely. It was, a, it was like an emergency mechanism that was there in the right. rules that no one thought would ever need to be used. And uh, and it certainly was and did need to be used. And um, so a number of retailers, well, well, one in the gas market in particular, Western Energy went, went you know, had to withdraw from the market and had a retailer of last resort event. Again, they're pretty, um, they don't happen terribly often either. Uh, and that was a major failure there of a gas retailer in, in um, the gas spot markets. And in, in, you know, we had clients ringing up saying their retailers and electricity retailers were telling them some of their retailers were, were just couldn't service them anymore. And could they please go and get, find themselves another retailer, which, Again, those 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 retailers that always bet on constant spot, you know, overall spot prices at the, the level they've been more or less at for the last previous years, they hadn't hedged their exposure. So when, you know, the average pool price goes from eighty dollars to several hundred, several thousand dollars, um, they go out backwards, or, or they just have to stop servicing their contracts if if they don't have hedge cover. So I think it might be helpful here to provide a little bit of a linkage between the wholesale market which Peter's been talking about, and then also the retail market. Yeah, so that'd be great, Richard. Effectively, all retailers have to buy electricity from the wholesale market that is operated by AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator. Um, if the price on that market goes up, then the price paid by the retailer also goes up, which therefore also reflects their costs. But there are a number of mechanisms that can be used by retailers to manage increases in price or to manage price risk essentially in the wholesale market. And this is really where you're talking about contracts for difference or hedges, which is essentially agreeing to buy an amount of electricity or to sell an amount of electricity um, at a set price, which may or may not be at the, at the wholesale price um, for a certain period going forward. Now, with the wholesale prices going up in the spot market, we're also seeing an increase in wholesale. Um, we're also seeing an increase in, in hedge prices. Um, those hedge prices may last for more than one year, as on the term of the hedge or the, the term of the the term of the offer um, may may extend for more than one year, um, which means that you know high prices or high high hedge prices today may in fact you know go through into higher retail prices because they reflect the price. The, the actual costs of the electricity faced by the retailer um, going forward for several years and into the future. Well, I, I can't imagine that uh, that mum and dad sitting at home what, looking at their their quarterly electricity bill realizes just how complex it is. But you know that that explanation really does shine a light on you know how complex the market is around, um, in particular, the wholesale and the retail prices. Um, Peter, I might go back to you. We talked, or, or Richard, we were talking about some of the factors that were impacting the Australian energy market, and we talked about outages. 
Um, did you want to expand on you know on what we saw last year and 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 how the market reacted to that? Yeah, Richard, why don't you have a lead off on that one? Yeah, so as Peter mentioned, there were a number of planned outages and then also a number of unplanned outages. And this is, you know, essentially across the national electricity market, a number of, um, a, a lot of Australia's large baseload um, coal generator or coal generate, coal-fired generation. Um, these are, this is generation that is baseload, it stays on all of the time and does not get turned off other than for outage. Um, if that gets knocked out, then the Australian market loses a lot of power very quickly. Um, so what we saw is coincidental planned outages from big plants as well as unplanned outages. Now, unplanned outages, they happen particularly as plants get older. Um, you know, some of these plants are getting up to, you know, 30, 40 years old. They're getting towards the end of their useful life. Um, you know, if you have an old car, you expect it to break down more often. Um, so not necessarily unexpected, but at the same time, you know, can have a significant impact on the amount of electricity that's actually able to be produced at any one point in time. There has been um, a recent authorization granted by the ACCC to AEMO and a number of other generators, which is essentially intended to assist in coordination between the generators as to um, the planned outages or it, 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 effectively improving coordination so that hopefully all of the all of the generation all of the generating units don't go down at the same time um that I mean, that's interesting isn't it because normally the actual doesn't want competitors coordinating with one another in a way that might impact competition and price but in this case they've actually authorized it yes hmm. and, and very very much so and um yeah typically as richard saying like a lot of that planned outage activity scheduled for April and May because yeah, that's between the, the high summer uh, and the high winter peaks. And what happens is that in if winter comes early, as it did this year in May, all of a sudden, all of that other capacity, the, the, the rest of that old older plant, which is in service, you start to get unscheduled outages because they can't they're running to keep up because you know that wasn't expected to demand to be that high and because they're older you then started getting cascading unscheduled outages as well which led to uh, a big call on gas-fired generation which comes in typically as it to peak to cover peak demand and had to be relied on very heavily so all of a sudden there was this very big demand in the gas market for by gas-fired generators uh, and that that led to this that that's the spike in the gas market happened slightly prior to the spike in the electricity market and and had a big flow on effect as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about gas. What what's the future of gas supply then in Australia? Gas supply in Australia has been there's obviously a lot of gas on the ground. Um, there are a number of older fields that are coming towards the end of their life. Um, such as the Gippsland Basin. There's also, you know, a lot of environmental and political concern around um, extracting gas from the ground. Um, a lot of what happened, or a lot of what has happened in particularly the East Coast, let's say the West Coast, is there are some potential forecast supply um, or gaps in supply. Um, a lot of Australia's, a lot of the East Coast gas is exported as LNG from Curtis Island in Queensland. Um, 
that's leaving gaps in the domestic market, which is leaving, which is leading to um, increases in price. Um, without substantial new investment in um, in in actual production of gas, as in new gas fields, um, or in the alternative, uh, a tie to the um, international market through um, an LNG import facility, which has been proposed at Wollongong. Um, then um, kind of likely to be ongoing issues every so often in relation to gas supply. Can I ask, um, you know, I think West Australia has a domestic retention policy, doesn't it, which, you know, enforces the producers over there to retain a certain amount for the West Australian market. Uh, there's been some debate about that in Australia for the East Coast. Is, is that a realistic prospect? Do you think is that something that we'll see? I'm not sure it's something that we'll see at the in the East Coast. Um, well, there's always a question as to how effective the WA policy is. Um, it's a life of field um, requirement, which is it, it, it depends on the actual field, um, how that how the actual requirements operate. Um, a lot of them are. Quite co are confidential between a agreements between the state of WA and and the field operator or the field owner. Um, so how effective those arrangements are, kind of, is a question that's open in my view. Um, I, I think it's likely that we will see increasing pressure put on, particularly the large LNG um, producers in Queensland, to make more gas available. Um, into the domestic market, and we've seen that kind of periodically over the last five or so years. Yeah, and and in on the east coast, we've have also had you know the Turnbull government then um, originally brought in this this idea of a gas supply trigger or guarantee, and and the the industries responded with their gas supply guarantee to that. So, and just recently, you'll have heard the Albanese government negotiating with the the, the LNG suppliers to sort of prevent. You know, persuade the government or, or agree with the government that they don't need to step in and exercise those sorts of powers to to reserve effectively um, gas for the domestic market. But certainly, it's been a slow-moving train wreck waiting to happen for the last eight years. That you know, all these LNG plant these LNG plants were built to export a lot of gas on the expectation at the time they were developed that there would be a lot of CSG development and new gas development. Um, coming online to support that because as, as Richard was saying we've got plenty in the ground but you know for political and environmental and other reasons that has been you know, there's been a moratorium in Victoria for example and and very great deal of difficulty getting projects through environment environment planning approvals and so we don't have enough of that gas um, to to meet both the de increased domestic demand and particularly as you know, it, it, you know, many people have said gas is a good firmer for the renewables until such time as there's enough pumped hydro and battery storage and, and given the speed with or the earlier time frame, which now seems to be looking like happening for coal-fired plant to withdraw with Origin and AGL announcing earlier withdrawal for of substantial capacity of existing coal-fired, then there is a real need to firm that renewables uh, and you know, gas is the net, you know, the most short-term fix for that, um, if, assuming we can get it out of the ground. 
So I think it's worthwhile just exploring a little bit what Peter's referring to when he's talking about firming here. Um, so as I mentioned a little bit earlier, coal-fired power stations are big baseload power stations that like to stay on forever or for long periods of time. Um, the issue that we have as we move into a renewable world is that things like wind only generates electricity when it's windy and things like sun or things like solar obviously only generate electricity when it's um, when it's sunny. Now that means that the actual amount of electricity that's produced by those generation by those types of generation is intermittent and can be difficult to plan. Um, so the AEMO has now got you know a great a great deal of you know, increased data and forecasting around essentially weather patterns. Um, wind is probably a little bit e a little bit easier than you know looking at cloud cover, um, particularly over say household household solar. Um, but nonetheless, they're, they're trying to take steps in that way. Now, gas is used in that kind of environment essentially to top up the additional to top up the generation that's otherwise required. The reason why gas is used in that way is that it can start very, very quickly. A big coal plant will take 16 to 24 hours to get to temperature and to produce electricity in an efficient manner. Gas is much quicker. It can, it can happen in a, in a case of an hour or two, which is why gas is often used to essentially manage the differences between demand and supply and to firm the supply from a generator. Right. So when I ask the question, what's the future for you know for gas in the Australian market? It, it looks like there's going to be a big future for gas, subject to those uh, supply issues that you both mentioned. That, that's right. It potentially it should be a very big future, but political and environmental, and you know, from a greenhouse being very pragmatic, um, to move from a you know take back five ten years, a substantially ninety percent coal fired East Coast, give or take, baseload with pumping out greenhouse gases at 90% coal-fired, well, gas is one quarter the the the, the level of, of greenhouse gases. And if instead of 90% of the time, you only need it for 20 or 30% of the time, and it's a quarter of the, it's it's a huge, huge yeah. reduction in emissions as a purely short-term to medium-term pragmatic thing to keep the lights on and reasonably affordable, which we, you've got a high gas price at the moment. So that that's the, the fly in that, Rather, that rather large fly in that ointment is, you know, we haven't got our gas out of the ground, so you know we need to keep the price down on that somehow, and and that's where the you know, either get the gas out of the ground or have a, a an understanding with the with the LNG manufacturer suppliers that that you know a certain amount at a reasonable price needs to be made available for the domestic market. And as the renewable energy market matures in terms of generation and transmission until that happens we've got a gap in dispatchable power right so it's going to have to be we will and then we will too until because again that 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 that'll be all of that will need to be firmed so you know there's there's projections that market economists have been saying you look at you know once you get to 60 or 70 percent renewables you really need you know and and coal has gone has gone or pretty much gone It'll be critical that you have that twenty or thirty percent of firming, which is batteries, pumped hydro, or gas. And I think any honest market economist who looks at that will tell you that you know, at, at the moment, gas and pumped hydro is only going to take you so far. You're going to need some gas until there's some technological breakthroughs or further um, pumped hydro uh, development. 
Well, look, we um, I, I want to swing around to ask some questions around the A Triple C. Yeah. Um, given you know my passion for uh, the uh, the Competition and Consumer Act, um, we haven't seen as much A Triple C activity in this space. You've mentioned uh, EMO, um, and there's also the Australian Energy Regulator, of course. But we you know we haven't seen the prosecutions from the A Triple C that we did say last year, and you know the last report that we had to the electricity market which was published in may is pretty boring reading even people who have a passion for the space but why are we not seeing the ACCC um activity um in this uh, sector or in these sectors that we ordinarily would would expect to see it could merely be a case of you know the ACCC has had some new powers or given to it over the last couple of years under part 11 ca of the um, Competition and Consumer Act. Um, those powers are quite significant. They relate to essentially um, passing on reductions in prices to at a retail level, making available um, financial contracts at a wholesale level. Um, it could, those are quite complex provisions with very substantial penalties or with potential for very, very substantial penalties. It could merely be a case that the ACCC is um, you know, working through some investigations in that space. Um, it could also be a case that um, default market offer that the AER sets out or is required to publish, at least for some of the East Coast states. Um, some of them have their own default market offers effectively, including Victoria. Um, and, and effectively, the default market offer is, is the offer, it's the price at which each retailer must charge consumers or must, must offer to the market. It can mm -hmm. offer variants on that. Um, but it could well be a case that you know, the imposition of the default market offer has led to a slightly changed um, marketing model of um, of uh, price plus discount. There's and there's an issue which I think Richard may have been alluding to earlier that there's a, a bit of a timing delay. So the AER relooks at the default market offer every year, and it's just set it back in earlier this year for the current financial year, and I think it went up about 37% or something like that. I can't remember the exact number, but but that was kind of set before the turmoil we were discussing a moment ago about May and June. And as Richard was indicating a short while ago, that those forward prices of, of those wholesale hedging contracts, which are the bottom, you know, the, the key price determinator for the wholesale price for those retailers, um, there'll be a lot of pressure on those retailers to you know meet the default market offer price with being squeezed by forward you know forward wholesale prices so that it'll be very interesting to see how that play I mean, if if i think it would be reasonable to predict that next year we'll see the default market offer price go up reasonably significantly again uh, i don't think one needs to be nostradamus to predict that one and richard is picking up one of the comments that you made about the, uh, these new powers. The ACCC um, is a pretty active regulator. They're um, uh, generally not reluctant to test new powers and to, you know, to bring some test cases. What, what do you think might be getting in the way of that? You know, why aren't we seeing any action by the ACCC uh, in relation to this, this, this new part of the Act that you mentioned earlier? Uh, they are quite complex um, prohibitions that are included in the Act, as I think Peter and I have probably already demonstrated today. It's a it's a very complex market um, with a lot of moving parts in it. Um, uh, undertaking an investigation it, under that uh, uh, under those provisions is it, it's not a it's not a small small enterprise. Um, it, it's certainly a, a lot easier to to run an ACL Section Twenty Nine 
misrepresentation case than, than a case of you haven't passed on and sustained and um, substantial um, price product, wholesale price reductions to your retail back customer base. I might just pivot um, because we were talking a little while ago about solar and pumped hydro. We've obviously had a change of government. We've had a commitment to um, you know, a, a, a degree of um, a reduction of our carbon put, footprint. Uh, there's been renewed emphasis on that. We're seeing now a, a discussion about carbon credits and a, the carbon credit market. So what role is that all happening? What impact is that all happening on the, the, uh, the Australian energy market? Quite a significant one, and I think you'll see more going forward. Um, not a lot at the, the the Commonwealth has passed legislation introducing a a target a a, a target for two thousand and thirty and onwards. In terms of uh, that's largely aspirational on reporting. There's yeah. talk of them amending the safeguard mechanism to which is an existing thing that's, that sets baseline levels, which are pretty much at business as usual for large emitters. So there's an expectation that possibly that will be ratcheted down with those those targets, which will require those larger emitters who with you know, lower targets to have to source carbon credits to offset their emissions. So, so that's at a regulated level, but already in the voluntary market, what we're seeing a lot of and this is something that the ACCC has kind of sounded some warning signs about. But what we've seen a lot of is more and more commercial and industrial and corporate customers want to be seen for their shareholders and their customers as carbon neutral. And so they've got to consume electricity, but they, they're trying to get either 100% renewable or, or by sourcing renewable energy certificates for each megawatt hour of electricity they consume, they get one, one renewable energy certificate. Uh, for, and that scheme's been around for a while, but now they're also there's a bunch of different uh, carbon reduction units. So you've you've got the Australian Carbon Credit Unit, which is 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 done under the Carbon Carbon Credits Carbon Farming Initiative Act. And there's a whole swag of projects that under under which under that legislation where you can create these ACCUs. But the, earlier this year, the price for those went through the roof because there were so so many retailers trying to source. So if, if 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 I'm your retailer and you're telling me you want to be carbon neutral, I've got to find for every megawatt hour of energy you consume, I've got to find carbon reduction certificates of some sort that that abate for all of the every ton of electric uh, of carbon that's attributable to the electricity you're consuming. You have purchased carbon abatement certificates from other some other project, which is either sequestering carbon from the atmosphere or um, resulting in um, let more carbon efficient, less less carbon emissions being being emitted from, from better processes and, and farming and different sorts of projects that you can do. But there's only, so now we're seeing a lot of international units as well. Um, and in particularly in the last six to 12 months, there's you know four or five or six other international schemes. And I think, some of them, how robust they all are, some more mm. so than others. And but as the price for these certificates become more in demand, and there's only a certain number of OCCUs you you can currently uh, that 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 said those pro, the, the demand for these projects is growing all the time. So you are seeing a lot. We're getting a lot of inquiries around carbon farming at the moment, and projects of that nature to to create to get these certificate sales. So I suspect it'll be an area that the ACCC watches very closely. 
I guess the, the increased price for these carbon units is driving uh, an increase in the domestic market. Correct. And that's yeah. how you like to see, a, ideally you see a voluntary market working in this way yeah. and there's less of a need for intervention. But um, it's certainly there's an increased demand for it and um, there's a limited supply of those certificates, but you know, supply and demand. So there, there will be, as the, the forward price of those ACCUs goes up, well, that drives investors to want to invest in carbon projects. And, and certainly we're seeing fielding a number of inquiries for new and different projects of that sort to to, to get off offtake contracts for ACCUs that'll fund the project and, and return give a return for investors. And you mentioned um, international carbon units, and I, I think yes. you mentioned you, you briefly mentioned a bit of scepticism about, or maybe some doubts about some of those projects. Who, who polices? Who polices this? Is well, it the ACCC a, or is it? You know, we've well, I heard about greenwashing in the last, you know, yes, week or two. Yes. It, it, does it fall within, you know, it's a great that question. area? And, and and to the extent that these the ACCC will police it to the extent that in Australia people are offering to customers UBUT or really good carbon certificates that are verifiable with as a, a proper auditing, a proper a, a proper administrator. So there's a range of these schemes overseas, which have been developed by, you know, under the Kyoto Protocols, some of them, and, and with proper auditing mechanisms. Uh, but some of them are newer than others, and some of them more robust than others. We like to think our own ACCU one here in Australia is pretty robust, but that said, it's it gets its fair share of criticism too, because of these methodologies by which you have to estimate the amount of carbon that a growing Mallee plantation, for example, is sequestering from the atmosphere and right. you know, what happens if there's a bushfire. And it's a very, it's a lawyer's picnic, but um, which is a terrible thing, of course. But but yes, yeah, so there's, it's it, you need a quite amount of robustness and accountability around it if, if you want to be comfortable that you are, you'd be able to sell to your customers genuine carbon abatement that, that can be attributed, that can be set off against the electricity they're consuming. So that's it'll be a very interesting area, I think, going forward. Well, it is interesting. I know and lots of international companies have been surprised when they've been caught by the ACCC because they didn't think the, um, you know, the Competition and Consumer Act or the Australian Consumer Law applied to them because they were, off, you know, uh, not within the jurisdiction and uh, they, from their point of view, trading outside of Australia. And yet we've seen particular tech companies, for instance, they've been caught. So I wonder whether the some of these uh, carbon um, unit producers might be invited to your lawyer's picnic, Peter. Well, we're, we're only too happy to help them, of course. <laughs> of course. All right. Um, so look, let's finish. We started with retail markets. Maybe we should just finish with some predictions from from both of you about you know what do you think this all means for for, for retail markets for energy in Australia? Uh, look, I mean, I think we're going to have um, a period of increased pricing throughout a transition into a lower carbon future. Um, I think the transition through into a lower carbon future is going to be by the looks of it, um, given the number of state-based policies that have been released over the last two to three years, um, very government-led um, and not market-led, which you know potentially going forward leads us into a leads us into a future which is 
um, a far more politically driven electricity price rather than a market driven electricity price, which is perhaps the world we've been in for the last 20 or so years. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I'd even perhaps go a bit uh, without wanting to sound alarmist, but I think <clears throat> there is a real risk as we go through the transition, as, as Richard's referring to, that uh, we will get spiking prices in the wholesale market and we will get supply interruptions. And I think it will take that, unfortunately, for government and industry to really realise that we have an issue that needs solving. Uh, and so there will be those supply interruptions and higher prices and, and until they focus on genuine solutions to firm that renewables and make sure I, I see it as the firming issue where as as the coal goes out quickly more quickly than people were planning and you don't have enough pumped hydro yet you don't have enough solar batteries there's lead times and all these things you're going to need a i think we're going to fall back on natural gas and and the hard words going to have to be put on the lng producers or some more is going to have to be developed to help us get through that trans trans uh, transformation. I don't see how, I don't see it happening without more gas in the mix at some point. Well, as uh, I think it was John Howard said, never waste a good crisis. So I suspect there's going right. to be a whole lot more uh, work and reform that's going to be required in this sector to deal with those challenges. So uh, that's something to look forward to, I guess. Um, thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the session. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Peter or Richard. Uh, our contact details are in the show notes. Uh, we also hope that you can join us for our next episode in Series 2 of our Watchdog podcast series. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Maddox on the Mic. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to maddox.com.au forward slash podcast to subscribe. If you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed in today's episode, visit the Maddox website, maddox.com.au.